Hello, everybody, and welcome to the China Tech Investor Podcast, powered by TechNode, seeking truth from facts when it comes to Chinese tech stocks and IPOs. I am Elliot Zagman, and with me is my co-host from the powdery slopes of Japan. It's James Hole. Hey. Um, so here's our disclaimer: nothing said on this podcast.、Um, Should be construed as investment advice or a solicitation of services. Even our numbers may be incorrect or off. Investing is risky. Speak with your financial advisor and do your own research before making investment decisions. So, James, you're in Japan right now. You're、uh, you're, you're ringing in the new year with a with a snowboard.、Um, yeah, trying to. Not quite there yet. On my way.、Um, But yes, I will. This、okay. is the annual Japan powder、uh, snowboard trip that I that I do. Sounds nice. Sounds nice. Yeah, I'm.、Uh, I'm stuck in. This is my last night in. It, so we're recording this. I'm recording this on on January first.、Um, you're on January second right now. But I'm in、uh, in my hometown of Grand Rapids, Michigan, right now. Flying out tomorrow. I got a 17 hour flight from Dallas、Oof. to Hong Kong. Ooh. I have never been on a flight like that, so but it's okay because I got a Nintendo Switch, and I have、um, Bring the book China's Third Revolution by Elizabeth Economy on audiobook. So I'm gonna listen to a China book.、Uh, I'm gonna play Zelda on Nintendo Switch, and、uh, that's how I'm gonna spend the flight. We have an interview with Paul Triolo, which I'm very excited about.、Um, Paul is. Uh, he's head of、uh, of Asia Tech Policy for the Eurasia Group, and、um, he's just he's worked for the Chinese government, worked for the U.S. government for about twenty five years,、uh, focusing on on all all sorts of issues about China and Chinese technology.、Um, And yeah, it's a, a really good、uh, interview that we have with him. We're talking about、uh, the the new restrictions that a lot of countries are putting in place when it comes to Chinese tech companies and Chinese companies investing investing in in their、um, in their、Or、industry, foreign so, investment in general. But yes, it, yeah, foreign investment. Yeah, a lot of it's China related. Yeah. So、um, yes, exactly. You're you're right. A lot of it is it is technically foreign investment restrictions, but、um, it is it is very clearly.、Uh, Uh, focused on China above all others.、Um, so yes,、yeah, so、we have we have a, a great interview with Paul coming up. But first,、uh, let's just go over you know what happened the year gone by. Which is we're recording this on on New Year's Day. At least I am.、Um, and、uh, let's talk about what predictions we have coming up for the future. So、um, what do we got, James?、Uh, okay, so looking back.、Um So China was the worst performing stock market in the world,、um, which is、uh, glad to be over, I think.、Um, and it was the Wall Street Journal had an interesting article talking about the how rough it's been for IPOs, especially in Hong Kong, which actually had IPOs in Hong Kong were the number one, the highest amount in the in the year of twenty eighteen. They beat the Nasdaq.、Uh, they beat the New York Stock Exchange,、um, which is pretty cool.、Uh, but a lot of those shares、uh, of those companies that listed in Hong Kong are down. So that includes Meituan, Dianping,、uh, which are down about thirty-six percent, and、uh, Pingan Healthcare, which are also down about 
49% since IPO. So yeah, uh, Xiaomi is down quite a bit too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, excuse me. Yeah. Rough, uh, rough year, I think altogether just for, it's a rough year for tech stocks, rough year for stocks in general and rough year for China. So Chinese tech stocks all, <laughs> all got hammered. Um, yeah. But that's after after having a very good 2017, 2016, 2015, or at least, mm-hmm. at least a lot of them. Um, not in, in every case. But um, yeah, uh, you know, just looking back at kind of like the year in review articles, um, I believe the average Chinese tech IPO that IPO'd um, overseas was, they went down 13%. Um, so I think what we just had, we, we had way too many Chinese tech companies IPOing. We had what we now see was clearly a bubble. Um, and But I also think that we have a lot of good value out there um, if if it can be found and if it can be uh, you know assessed um, correctly. So um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of bargains out there because I think that you know a lot of these companies they had they had trouble, especially in 2018, uh, they had trouble w- with their fundraising um, yeah, because the bubble burst in China and the China mainland. Um, it was they had trouble getting private financing, so they kind of were forced to IPO, and then they had trouble IPOing. Um, so you get a lot of these companies that were valued at you know four billion dollars, um, four or five billion dollars, uh, you know, just a, a year or two ago that are now at you know one to two in their market caps. And you know, some could say that's just a, a correction. Now they're valued correctly, but others might say that you know, if you're bullish on the Chinese economy, then um, you know, these are, are, are companies that you might want to take a look at. And I think that for a lot of these tech companies, when you compare them to, you know, some of these, you know, these state-owned companies or these these companies that are in more traditional industries, you'll see that, at least from my perspective, they're run so much more efficiently. They're run... It, it, when, when I'm asked, what is the difference between a Chinese company and an American company? I will often say that should be asked is not, what is the difference between a Chinese company, an American company, but what is the difference between a Chinese tech company or a Chinese tech startup and a more traditional Chinese company? Because a lot of these companies, their 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 management is getting to the, uh, up to par with, I think, what you see in Silicon Valley now. So um, I, I, uh, I'm... I think that there's a lot of good values to be found out there and uh, I'm pretty optimistic, but you know, like we know that there are a lot bigger headwinds going on right now. And there, there are a lot of good companies that could just end up being the, the, the casualties to, um, you know, to, to what's happening in the, the, the big macro, as they say. So let's talk a little bit more about that. So we saw that, you know, obviously Trade tensions have gotten worse. U.S.-China tensions have gotten worse, and that seems to be the uh, the big story. So, uh, what is your takeaway from looking at you know that whole kind of the the, the bigger picture, the big macro, um, when it comes to uh, twenty eighteen and looking forward to twenty nineteen, James? Um, well, with the China-U.S. trade war, uh, I mean, we'll see what happens. I mean, clearly, it's it's an important piece, uh, and I think a lot of people are kind of hoping that it de-escalates, um, you know, and kind of one, one thing I like to do uh, when I look forward, I don't, I don't really like to make predictions per se, but I like to look at what are the different scenarios that could be happening. And then as the year progresses, kind of track how those are developing, if they're developing. Um, and I think for the China trade war, there's three, it's pretty simple. It's, this isn't, isn't rocket science. There's three 
scenarios, it either escalates, stays where it is, or de-escalates. Um, hopefully it de-escalates. Uh, and then I guess the next hope would be it stays where it is. Um, and then escalating would make, I think, things worse. Um, and that's probably, you know, to the extent that any of these Chinese tech companies raise uh, overseas money, I think that's going to have an impact potentially if it does escalate. Um, so hopefully it doesn't. Uh, I think, you know, other, you know, looking at over 2019, we're probably going to see some big IPOs, uh, potentially and financial. And when that comes out, I mean, I, I can't wait to read that filing. That's going to be fascinating. Yeah, man. Um, <laughs> We've talked about Ant Financial yeah. before. Ant Financial, <laughs> to me, I mean, it might just be that I don't know enough about the company, but it seems like just there's so many questions. When we talked early when we kind of listed our um, when we listed out or our, our watch list for the first time, we talked about, you know, Ant Financial you know, with Alibaba, where is the relationship? How is the relationship? How should one be thought of, um, you know, when looking at the other? And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of, it, there's definitely kind of a murky relationship there. Um, and also, you know, their, their, I guess their last round of funding, they were valued at $150 billion. Is that right? Yeah. Yep, Making right. them more... The highest, the most valuable bank in the world. Is that correct? Well, they're the the. Um, I'm not sure. I haven't checked that, but they're definitely the highest valued private company. I think that's insane. Um, I mean, you know, it, from a private. Maybe there's some other higher valued private companies, but but to have a fi- um, a financial company that's valued at that level, but also that is is technically not like a a, a bank that goes through the regulations that other banks go through um i mean there's obviously a lot of potential there but there is there is there's a lot of a lot of question marks when it comes to that um yeah i'm i'm curious like how profitable are they how are they gonna segment their businesses um how much are they gonna disclose i mean they gotta disclose a lot in an ipo filing yeah um it, it should be it should be very, very interesting, and, uh, and probably huge. Like very long, lots of legal disclosures and risk disclosures, and uh, yeah. It's, but it should be very interesting. One thing that I that I think would, would be interesting with them. One is is, you know, every other bank that size in China is a state owned bank. So, uh, looking at, I mean, obviously we've seen we've seen regulators get involved a lot more closely with Ant Financial and. Um, with with you know ten cents financial arms, um, but also like how exactly is is our regulators going to look at Amp Financial and how what is the long term strategy for how um, you know Chinese regulators and the party wants to you know rein in Ant Financial and while also allowing it to you know to grow and you know we have this this constant you know dynamic that is going on you know it goes on everywhere but i think in china in some ways it is a little more pronounced because of how intense everything is you know you have these state-owned companies that are so um you know i I would say they're really inefficient and then you have these these tech startups that 
you know, really apply a lot of these kind of Silicon Valley principles plus like Chinese, you know, cowboy capitalism to these to this extremely intense uh, uh, environment, which allows them to grow so quickly. Um, how do you take these two cultures uh, and kind of merge them into a way that is um, is healthy for the business and that investors can can rely on getting and continuing to get you know healthy returns with i i uh, it's going to be an interesting uh company to follow that, i don't know if i would be buying that, their stock though that that uh reminds me i think we did an episode where we talked about uh taishin's ninth summit and joe xiaochun uh making comments about um kind of tech innovation and how it impacts banks and financial regulators and kind of how difficult it is to be a financial regulator. Um, yeah, that, that maybe maybe people should go listen to that for for some thoughts on uh but I think um I mean it is it is I don't know if I mean they don't need to make try to make Ant Financial an SOE probably. Um, but it is a how how are they gonna make the I mean they they've been changing the financial regulations, right? I mean one of the things they did is they got rid of the ability for uh, and financial and uh, WeChat Pay to receive um, interest on their deposits, right? Uh, and that was that's taken a hit from. I mean, I think that was basically straight. That was revenue that just would drop straight to profit, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's um, that's that's too bad, I think, for them. But they're gonna need you know they'll they'll need to change their business and. They have been doing that all year or all last year, um, and that actually that's a big thing in 2018 that ended at the end of 2018 is the percent that they could charge and get an interest on went to zero. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, I'm I'm very much looking forward to Ant Financial's IPO. Hopefully, it happens. Yeah, I um, I think that I don't know everyone I talk buyer, to but, is is saying it's. It's 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 a sure thing, for, or, or at least as close as they can say that to for 2019. And the closer they are to the company, the more confident they are about having an IPO. But one thing that I'm very interested in is seeing how they decide to file. So one is I I think that they're almost certainly going to be going Hong Kong. Um, that is my, that that's every everyone who I talk to is saying Hong Kong, um, but not just Hong Kong. I think that. I, I think that that China is still is very interested in this idea of CDRs, um, the Chinese deposit receipts. Um, is that is that what yeah. it is? A CDR, Chinese deposit receipts. Okay, yes. Okay. You 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 know more about me with all this stuff more than me about all this stuff. Um, it, so it seems like they, they kind of this was a big goal for them for twenty twenty eighteen is they were hoping to get Xiaomi and they were hoping to get you know these the the startup wave or the IPO wave this year to go on the, the CDRs and it did not work out but I think it, they still have an eye on it um, so some people that I'm talking about talking to are saying that they're looking at um, they're hoping for a a potential that Am Finan- the potential the potential that Am Financial will list some CDRs uh, in addition to um, Hong Kong uh, 
but we'll see. I, I really don't. Uh, you know, this is all just speculation. It's all it's all bagua, as they say in China. It's all just just gossip, just scuttlebutt. You know, gossip. Yeah. So we'll we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. Um, I'm also. I think you know we're gonna have we have a a, a ride share. Uh, you know, there's gonna be a lot of ride share IPOs. Um, Uber is probably gonna IPO. Lyft is probably gonna IPO. And what's going on with DD? Um, are they gonna IPO? I, I don't know, man. Have you heard anything? No. Well, I um, maybe. It seems about time, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe they'll let Uber, Uber, Lyft file did the same. They filed a confidential filing the same week. Um, so we'll see who goes first. Uh, that'll be interesting. And then whoever goes first ends up kind of pricing that market and so dd if they go after them i guess would have there'd be some sort of pricing mechanism from those two filings those two listings um so it should it could be interesting yeah although i don't think i think it's tough with these mobility companies um if they're still burning cash yeah and cash is hard to come by you know i i um, I don't know what to think about if them. If they're burning cash and their growth is slowing down at the same time, uh, and the cash burn's not getting any better, then that's kind of concerning. Yeah, and interest rates are I going mean, up. A lot of these companies, and they're gonna IPO. they want to... Right, so. right. And, yep. And that's another big one. What are central banks going to do? Um, that, you know, I, I mean, it's not China tech, but it does... Uh, central banks are impacting markets um more than i think usual yeah. uh, but yeah. and then we also got bike dance i think that we can be pretty certain about their ipo that they will be ipoing in this coming year um that all the all the That'll talk around their fundraising that they did either both from their their more recent round of private funding from in um i think that was november november october um plus they did they did one point they raised 1.5 billion in debt financing from a bunch of wall street banks um so they put in at least 4.5 billion in in <laughs> into their coffers and um they're well, spending it obviously um but we'll see on marketing we'll see i mean they, they got that high valuation you know they're, they're definitely gonna be a fun one to follow that's for sure um but yeah, so that's that's what we're looking for for uh, for 2019. Anything else want to you want to bring up before we uh, go to the interview with Paul? Uh, I think I'll just bring up briefly here. Last week we talked about uh, being positive um, or finding it pretty positive that there was this proposal to prohibit local governments from forced tech tech transfers or blocking market access for foreign businesses. Uh, According to NPCobserver.com, um, the NPC Standing Committee didn't put this proposal on their business, uh, on their agenda for uh, the March uh, 2019 NPC session. So maybe this is going to take a little longer to get implemented. Um, and yeah, we'll see. And I mean, M so on NPC Observer, they were saying that maybe this is uh they need more comment from the market or from the uh, uh, market participants with feedback and comment on this 
new proposal. So, um, you know, maybe that's it. But if March 1 is going to be the deadline for U.S.-China uh, trade talks right now, um, yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe we might miss it. I mean, there's been some Trump tweets and there's been some uh, stuff about the potential of extending this. Maybe that's one of the things that happens. Um, but but uh, it, not seeing progress or not seeing this on the MPC's agenda is a, not is makes it a little bit less positive than we were um, saying last. Yeah, this is this is my my hot take with that is that there is I I think that there is very little that can be done in the short term to solve any of these problems. I think is our 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 structural you know deep structural issues most of which china's been trying to deal with for its own health and its own economy for a long long time um and they, they can't just flip a switch and change it's not gonna happen um i think best case scenario is they meet they they say a bunch of things trump wants to claim victory so he claims victory um they kick the can down the road there's still some tensions, but um, we at least are able to kick the can down the road a little bit more and not feel like the world is coming to an end <laughs> uh, when it comes to all this stuff. So that that's my best case scenario. Right. But also, I'm just a I'm just a blog boy. So <laughs> take what I say with a grain of salt. Yeah, so here's our interview with Paul Triolo. Joining us today is Paul Triolo. Paul is the head of global technology policy at the Eurasia Group and has been focusing his his entire career, for the most part, on China and China technology. He's worked with the U.S. government for over 25 years, uh, advising on uh, issues of China policy and China China tech. So, Paul, uh, thank you for joining us today. What a pleasure. I'm, I'm glad we can finally uh, get together and talk about these important issues. Yeah, yeah. So, um... Well, so Paul, Paul, you're an expert on, on a number of things. I mean, you've written a lot, particularly on 5G. Uh, and what we're going to be talking about today has something to do with that, but more about this whole kind of the, the changing investment landscape when it comes to Chinese companies uh, investing in places like North America, the U.S., Europe. Um, so uh, we'll, a lot of this acronym CFIUS, C-F-I-U-S, um, is often thrown around. Um, so let's just start off with that. Um, so for those of us who are not policy wonks, hmm. what is CFIUS? What is investment review? Um, and, and why does it matter when it comes to China and technology? Great question. Great question. So CFIUS is the Committee for Foreign Investment in the U.S. And CFIUS was, has a long history, a long, and I won't go too much into detail on the long and turgid history of CFIUS, but basically it was set up in 1975 uh, by an executive order of the president to start reviewing what was going on in terms of foreign investment in the U.S. And, you know, 1975, the, a lot of the concern back then um, ended up being Japan. And so uh, over the years, uh, the focus of CFIUS has changed depending on you know countries of concern to the U.S. So in 1988, for example, um, uh, interestingly, Fujitsu, a Japanese company, was trying to acquire a Fairchild Semiconductor, uh, and that led to sort of an updating of CFIUS uh, and, and a real focus more on technology. Uh, and then in, 19, in 2007, uh, 
the uh, another uh, update to Sifius um, brought it uh, under statutory authority, so it made it um, operate sort of uh, under under a legal uh, system, whereas before it had been sort of a series of executive orders. Uh, and then, of course, since 2007, uh, what's happened is in the world, of course, is the rise of China as a technology power. And so, uh, as we sort of fast forward to to, to this year, um, the new legislation governing CFIUS uh, is really a result of, of the rise of China as a tech power. Uh, and that's the so-called foreign investment risk. I would, I would put, put in, emphasize the word risk, review, uh, modernization act, so-called FIRM, another horrible acronym. Um, but it, it's really an, a, a, the result of several years of negotiation between Congress and industry uh, to try to get a handle on um, uh, Chinese investment, particularly, and then, and then again, strike this balance. The whole reason for CFIUS originally is to strike this balance between national security and commerce. So it's not intended to just be a sort of a blunt instrument to block foreign investment. Uh, typically, there's been, for example, a, a real attempt to find mitigation strategies. So you may remember in 2005, Lenovo, a Chinese company, Chinese computer leader, uh, uh, acquired IBM's laptop division. And so, uh, you know, uh, probably today that wouldn't have gone through, uh, given the political climate, which we can talk about. But in 2005, what happened was CFIUS devised a mitigation strategy, which was to spin off the notebook division, a part of IBM. Uh, IBM that supplied government clients, uh, and then they let the deal go through. So uh, typically, CFIUS has been, you know, this att- attempted to, to find ways to not not impede investment and commerce, um, and try to find strategies around that, but also, um, you know, try to address squarely the, the the national security concerns. The difference that we have now is that. With this administration, national security has become economic security, or economic security has become national security, and that's that's complicated um, the the situation and made it much more complicated for investors to uh, to navigate this, which we can talk about. So, CFIUS is is something that's evolved over the years, um, depending on what the the perceived concerns about national security were at investment, and now it's of course squarely focused on China and China's rise um, as a tech power. So you would say that it, historically the role of CFIUS in the U.S. at least, um, or the role of investment review in the U.S. Um, in the case of CFIUS, uh, has been a mitigating role, right? So to, to find a way to basically negotiate between the commerce and the national security side um, and to, to make a deal work. Um, it seems as though... Many would say, and it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong about your opinion, that you see the current administration as playing kind of more of a of a of a zero sum or just kind of blocking role when it comes to to, to Civius and saying like instead of mitigating these deals, we're just gonna gonna put a stop to them altogether. That's that's a I'm not sure I would characterize it exactly like that, but I think that this really began under the Obama administration. So um, okay. it, the the concern about China uh, initially has centered on. Uh, particularly uh, China's uh, attempt to up- update its semiconductor industry and to and to invest heavily in semiconductors. And so uh, in 2014, China set up this nas- 
National IC Fund, uh, which is about, which which eventually has reached 150 billion, depending on who you talk to. Uh, and and that fund was originally designed for domestic acquisition and mergers and acquisitions domestically, but then eventually ended up being used for foreign acquisition. And this generated a lot of concern in the U.S. under the late late in the Obama administration. And so you had under Obama uh, the, the the rare use of an executive order because usually with CFIUS what happens is if if a deal can't be worked out if if the parties to the deal realize that CFIUS is not going to approve this they'll just withdraw from the deal but it, but in uh, in 2016 uh, the the um, the president used an executive order to shoot down the Eichstron deal this was a German semiconductor company that had that had a US uh, uh, subsidiary and that that gave CFIUS jurisdiction over this so starting in the, during that period um, all Chinese acquisitions started to come under greater scrutiny. And then, you, and, and you're right in the sense that under this administration in particular, the idea of a mitigation, of pursuing mitigation and trying to find a way forward has really sort of taken a backseat to the political climate and the, con- the broader concerns about China as a technology power. So, for example, the Ant Financial deal and the MoneyGram deal, there was a huge attempt to find a mitigation strategy for that. So Alibaba hired a lot of high, high-priced lawyers Lawyers and, and former U.S. government officials, and put together a real, a really serious mitigation strategy for that. But it was really not even listened to um, at CFIUS. They, they didn't even um, they, did, hmm. they, did, they weren't willing to take, take that into account. So yeah, so in, in a sense, this administration is less willing uh, to look at mitigation strategies and is more concerned uh, about a broader range of issues. As I mentioned, things like data, uh, per access to personal data, which accounts in large part for the, the rejection of the uh, financial deal, uh, and then again. This this sort of equation of uh, national security with economic security. So there's a there's a bigger uh, component to that uh, in some of the considerations now around CFIUS. Um, so, for example, and last example I'll give you here is, is the the, uh, the Broadcom Qualcomm acquisition in, um, uh, in in I think it was April April or May or early this year that mm-hmm. was shot down for a very strange reason uh, and gives you an example of how broad the authorities of CFIUS are. So the argument there was that Broadcom's acquisition proposed acquisition of Qualcomm would undermine Qualcomm's business model and and impede their ability to compete with Huawei for 5G in China, um, and so mm. that's that's a good example of sort of that the CFIUS authorities are pretty broad and, and and a lot of their the way they're used and interpreted and implemented depends on the poli- the broader political climate. Uh, so so even though there are some statutory requirements, um, there's broad authority for the president to take action in a particular case, and that's what happened uh, in that in that case. So yeah, you're right. I think. That, 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 that the, the, the tendency here is to use this to block just about anything from China that could be considered either national or economic security and to play down the idea of, of, uh, of having a mitigation strategy uh, where that doesn't make sense. So, so you mentioned that MoneyGram deal. I want to mm-hmm. get back to that. Um, so Ant Financial, the kind of the fintech arm that is associated with Alibaba, right? James and I, we have had uh, a, a, a complicated time trying to figure out exactly what the relationship is between the two companies. But they're the Alibaba-affiliated uh, fintech arm that is the um, that is behind all of their um, all of the transactions that happen on Alibaba's platforms. Um, so they uh, at their last round of funding, they were valued at 150 billion dollars. There, they could be seen as the world's most valuable bank. But they made a bid to buy MoneyGram. MoneyGram is a a a 
financial transfer service um, in the U.S. Um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but it's one that I think a lot of, a lot of people use if they need to, uh, for example, remit money um, from you know maybe they're migrant workers in the U.S. or they right. they need to remit money back home. And they're used um, by the U.S. military also. They're they're used a lot okay. by the U.S. military overseas. Yeah. So they they yeah they're a, they're a, a money sort of remittance and, and transfer uh, uh, organization across international borders. So so why is this sense? I mean, to, to me, like I I had this this I was taken aback by this because you know I can understand semiconductors. Um, I can understand even like the Huawei 5G argument to some extent, um, but why financial transfers? Why is this sensitive? Well, in this case, it really wasn't so much the financial piece of it as it was the fact that MoneyGram has a certain amount of personal data on the on the users of its system, and so for, and I think specifically it has a lot of personal information on military. U.S. military personnel overseas that are using the service, and that essentially was the the the, the reason. But the, the, the but you have to step back and look at the broader context. So the broader context is that over the last say four years, there has been uh, there have been a number of major shall we say breaches of data personal of U.S. Uh, personal data, starting uh, with the OPM. Uh, hack that was attributed to China uh, in the 2015-2016 time frame. And, then and just to, uh, to clarify, that's yeah. the Office of Personnel Management yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, the Office of Personnel Management in the U.S., which, which, which was the information Government about, employees. I don't know, 10, something like 10, 10 a million, yeah. uh, maybe it was up to as many as 10 million U.S. government personnel, their sort of, their application files for, for, um, for uh, security clearances. And then on top of that, you had things like Anthem, some health data that was breached, uh, and you had United Airlines, some data on United Airlines, uh, and so all this all this perception is that China is trying to acquire data on the, on personal citizens uh, in the U.S. that could be used for a variety of purposes, counterintelligence purposes, for example. And so the MoneyGram and financial deal happened within this broader context of concern over the leakage, if you will, of uh, personal data about U.S. citizens more broadly. And so that also played into the decision. Um, uh, and again, th- this wasn't really shot down formally with an executive order, but basically uh, the companies tried to work out a deal, a mitigation deal with CFIUS, and it was rejected, and so they, they withdrew from the, from um, the transaction. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I guess I, if maybe go back just a little bit, I guess, so if CFIUS, uh, mm-hmm. it's a committee, I guess, who sits on the committee and Kind of what role does the administration have um, in their decisions? Yeah, it's it's a it's a complicated structure actually. So the ultimate authority under under CFIUS and CFIUS legislation resides with the president. So only the president can really decide what to do for a particular deal. So CFIUS is a committee that is headed up by by the U.S. Department of Treasury and includes. Most of the of the important cabinet uh, level organizations, so USTR, the Commerce Department, the State Department, um, and, and also the intelligence community, the Director of National Intelligence. So, the, 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 at the high level, the committee is is, a, is head heads is headed by these these department senior department leaders. But the actual functioning of the committee, the sort of work workaday part of the committee, is is really a lot of different government organizations that will do the actual research on a particular deal, and a lot of a lot of that will come from the intelligence. Community, but also from uh, places like the Commerce Department. So, for a particular deal that's being reviewed, it will undergo. There'll be a lot of research conducted about the deal, and then ultimately that information will get p- 
passed up to to the to the actual committee level, uh, the working level, and and sort of senior levels of the committee for a decision. And then um, the, the the committee also works with the companies with with lawyers. There's a whole <laughs> there's a whole group of, of of law firms in D.C. that specialize in CFIUS cases. Um, so there's a lot of back back and forth and interaction between working level people uh, at the Treasury Department in particular and other other U.S. Or, um, government organizations and the companies to try to work out uh, the deal and, and, and figure out what the concerns are. And then ultimately, if there's a decision, if the companies stick to a decision that, that, that um, stick to a deal and there's still the CFIUS is opposed to this, then uh, in rare cases that then this gets this, this gets pushed to the president to actually reject the deal. And that has not happened very often in the history of CFIUS. Usually the companies will pull out before um, this happens. Um, but as I mentioned, there was a deal in 2016 under Obama, and then Trump also uh, used an executive order, for example, to shoot down the Lattice Semiconductor deal, the acquisition by Canyon Bridge Partners, a Chinese uh, company, uh, Chinese-backed company, uh, in 2017. And so um, the, 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 the authorities that are, that are behind CFIUS are, are arcane U.S. laws like the International Economic Emergency Powers Act, IEPA, that are cited then to give the president authority to shoot down a particular deal. Um, but the, the actual working of the committee is done sort of at the working level among U.S. government agencies on a particular case. Um, and then the committee would meet, the, the principals would meet uh, if a case rose to that level where it needed to be adjudicated and possibly passed. To the president to be to be rejected. So the problem and the, the problem that industry has um, in general is that this is not a, a, a transparent process. <laughs> this is a very opaque process. And so um, if you're looking in from the outside of this, even if even if you're, if you're a lawyer working for one of the companies, you may not have full visibility on the deliberations of the committee and what kinds of things are taken into account. Um, so it's it's that's one of the criticisms of the whole process is is sort of its lack of transparency. But it's evolved over the years. Uh, you know, as as the, the challenges and the concerns that it's taken up have changed, uh, and but it's it's really to call it it's a committee sort of at a, at a higher level, but it includes a whole bunch of other um, you know, sort of relationships within the government in terms of investigative powers and other things that that uh, are part of the whole process. That's very very complicated. <laughs> huh. um, yeah, it's a bit it's a bit complicated, right? And, that, and that's that's one of the concerns is, and the new law is trying to bring a little more transparency to this. So, in terms of publishing uh, more detail about cases and how how decisions were made and that kind of thing. So, um, this this it's come under a lot of criticism because <laughs> you can imagine from a Chinese perspective too. For example, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of transparency here on how decisions are made, and so they see this as very much um, you know right. something of concern that uh, uh, and are, and would would like to. To see more I think transparency. When, when I go back to the MoneyGram mm. uh, part, and the, part of the reason they they were blocking that was the mm-hmm. data. That kind of reminded me of the European Union and their data protection uh, rules and regulations. Um, it seems like there's a trend. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen some group in Germany recommend that they adopt some sort of security-based investment, foreign investment framework. Uh, I saw some news that the European Commission has proposed a CFIUS-like framework that would be um, in addition to member states' own foreign investment rules. Uh, And the framework supposedly would allow the EC, the European Commission, or other member states to flag reported sensitive foreign investment for further review. Is, is Is my understanding about that right? And is, is this a trend that's going on? And I guess one more little 
piece to add. Um, there are, you know, China's Chinese companies, I think, that are, are looking to make overseas acquisitions. They're kind of pivoting away from the U.S. And one of the first places they're looking is Europe and uh, obviously Israel as well. And I guess if you could cover those two areas. Yeah, I think that's a, that, that's a great question. So the Europeans... Um, have become increasingly sensitive to this issue of Chinese investment, uh, going back uh, a, number, a couple of years, specifically to the to the acquisition uh, in 2016 of the leading German robotics maker KUKA by a Chinese company Medea, um, uh, which is a, which is an electronics components company, and uh, this this set off a lot of alarm bells because this was the sort of crown jewel of of German automation, <laughs> the German automation industry, yeah. and um, this this um, sort of has this along with some of the other semiconductor deals that I mentioned earlier that also included European companies uh, has sort of galvanized the Commission, uh, the e- the EC in Europe to to, to re- rethink how Europe handles this um, this kind of of issue, and basically the the the, the authority to, sh- to to reject deals. Resides at the member state level. So the the European Commission recently, as you noted, has decided to set up a mechanism. It's really an information sharing mechanism. And so within the European Commission, for example, the DG Trade and DG Connect, which are two of the the uh, the, the, the Commission. Uh, Directorates that deal mostly with with trade and, and investment, they're they said they're going to be setting a me- mechanism. It's going to go into effect, I think, in February because they just passed the, the regulation. Uh, it's got to go through the parliament, a parliamentary approval, and being and then be, be translated into all the languages of the member states. Uh, but that will go into effect in February and provide a high level mechanism for sharing uh, data related to investments in the, within the member states. But right now, I think 14 of the 28 member states, and that, that includes, of course, the UK, already have a screening mechanism. Mechanism, uh, of one sort or another. Now, it varies widely within the EU because e- each member state has its own set of, of legal uh, structures and frameworks. Uh, but 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 the, those are all being sort of beefed up now. So the uh, the, the Germans, in particular, are, are beefing up their uh, their their review structure and, and process. To, um, so that they none of them have a CFIUS like structure, but they all have their own particular uh, methods for reviewing uh, deals. And that's, uh, in the last two years, that, that process has really, really sped up. So yes, China is going to be facing a really tough environment globally, uh, as some of its te- leading tech firms like Alibaba and Baidu and Tencent and others go, go global and look to potentially acquire other companies, because it's not just the United States now. The EU is definitely ramping up its efforts. And there's a split there, of course, between the, 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 the bigger cu- countries and some of the more free trade countries in the north, the smaller countries like the Netherlands, who still would are, are reluctant to, to formally bar Chinese investment, for example. Uh, and then you also have places like Japan. Japan is very much uh, also uh, on board with this, and they again they don't have a, a similar thing as the CFIUS, but they but they're also uh, they have other other ways to block deals, and so they're looking at this also. Israel, I think, is becoming increasingly sensitive to this issue as a result of the the recent you know Chinese acquisition of a port in Haifa that where U.S. military vessels dock, and that's come under that's generated a lot of concern in Israel about Chinese investment. So it's mm-hmm. it's much broader than the U.S. Um, this concern about Chinese investment, particularly in, in Europe, it's more about infrastructure. Also, I mean, it's about technology too, but mm-hmm. it's about infrastructure. 
infrastructure, things like power plants um, and you know energy, you know power grids and that kind of thing. So uh, yeah. it, it's, and five and five G as well, like which we've talked about quite a bit. Yeah, well, five G is a little different, um, a little mm. different case. There, it's yeah. more of a that's more of a sort of a supply chain. Um, issue mm. uh, and yeah, it, it's all it's 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 about it's, it has a national security concern also, um, but it's a little different mm. in terms of how it would be handled by those those um, those governments in Europe. But yeah, that's right. a whole that's okay. a whole topic we could do another yeah, whole, whole, whole podcast. Other thing. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, but one thing that, that that does kind of pop into my mind here is you know we talked about uh, how the the MoneyGram deal was blocked because of of a data issue. I mean nowadays. Every company is dealing with loads of user data. You know, every we, we, we talk specifically about these internet companies, these tech companies, but just about every company is now an internet company. Um, so if you if these deals can be blocked um, based on you know sensitive user data, I mean, what company? doesn't have sensitive user data. <laughs> I, I mean, it, does this is this just a big um, you know, for for those of our of us who are you know interested or invested in Chinese tech companies, you know, how concerned should we be um, when it comes to their ability to to expand globally? That's a great question. I think this is, and of course, this is all happening just as Chinese tech companies, you know, besides the size of the ones that already have done that, like Huawei and Hire, for example, are wanting mm-hmm. to go, the big platforms are wanting to go global. So, yeah, they're going to have a lot of difficulty. I think the Ant Financial MoneyGram was, a, was sort of a harbinger of things to come. They're going to have a hard time with any acquisition that's, that involves either te- clear sort of advanced technology or even foundational technology and involves data and, ac- and access to data. So it, it's definitely a concern. Now, it's gonna, I think we're going to have to see how this plays out, um, in, in, particularly in Europe, where, where, uh, where we haven't really seen too many – we haven't seen the, any cases beyond sort of the, the traditional – the semiconductor case. Um, we haven't seen a major case come forward come to the come to the the fore that that involves clearly data and and where there's a rejection on this so part of the challenge is the a lot of these things are just being put into place there's also in the u.s for example the whole export control piece which we haven't talked about which which uh, involves things like emerging technologies uh, including artificial intelligence you know ob- robotics automation quantum computing all these things are also sort of coming into place and the, the challenge is understanding where this is going and usually you need things exam- specific examples where where there has been a case brought forward and there's been a legal battle over the case you know lawyers have gotten involved and then you have a better sense of how for example CFIUS is going to treat a particular deal or how a particular technology is going to be going to be controlled and might affect some type of an acquisition that involves that technology so we're sort of at the cusp of, of this of this new era we have some some hints, some clear hints, like the MoneyGram deal, um, and then other other kinds of things like the the Broadcom Qualcomm deal, for example. Um, and then the Chinese, for example, have also reacted to this. They they, they also have a uh, an antitrust process to approve mergers and acquisitions. For example, the most notorious, of course, being the the NXP Qualcomm deal um, that they let mm. basically die in August. Um, so I think the the broader picture is complicated for the whole mergers and acquisitions piece because 
of the of the of the the new focus in the U.S. and then how places like China and, and their their regulatory uh, regime is going to react to this too and might retaliate um, or might might you know drag its feet on certain deals. Um, that that they believe have a national security implication for China. So it's it's definitely compared to even a year ago. I think it's a much more complicated environment. A year ago, you know, before the the Ant uh, financial money gram deal, for example, I think and people were generally opt- more optimistic about Chinese tech companies and about the whole the whole sector going forward. But it's amazing how much has changed yeah. in the last year. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've noticed this as well. Okay, so just a follow up question on the export. Um, I, I remember seeing something in the Federal Register that was talking about export controls on U.S. technology, and it was extremely broad. Is um, are you are, are you familiar with that, and are you kind of referring to that? Is that a place we can share it with our listeners in the show notes? But is that something? Sure, sure. Yeah, this is the new so, – so, so stepping back. So this summer, what we had, in addition to the to the CFIUS legislation, the, the so-called FIRMA, the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, we also had the Export Control Reform Act uh, passed. These, these were two bills that were attached to the U.S. National Defense Authorization Act. And the, the so-called ECRA c- uh, contained a section that, that called for – the U.S. government through the interagency process to come up with a list of so-called emerging technologies and also a list of so-called foundational technologies. So uh, so in November, the Commerce Department, the Bureau of Industry and Security, released the first list uh, for comment of emerging technologies, and that's yeah. the list I think you're referring to. And that list contained a whole host of technologies, a very detailed list of, of, of uh, technologies related to artificial intelligence, including uh, AI algorithms, including AI semiconductors, chip, chips, chipsets, uh, and including so-called AI cloud technologies, which I took to mean as sort of development environments um, in the cloud, like TensorFlow and some of the other uh, in, in development environments around AI. And it also included things like quantum computing. Uh, there were some other specific semiconductors in there. So this was a, this was a so-called uh, announcement of proposed rulemaking, and that means that the, that the Commerce Department is going to take yeah. comments from industry about about these technologies. And initially, it was only a 30-day period, and industry was very. Uh, upset by this, and so they petitioned Commerce for an extension, and the extension was granted until January 10th. So actually, next week is the end of the formal comment period. And in fact, I've been reviewing just recently all the many industry comments uh, and concerns about that list because, as you noted, it is very broad, um, and it's a little bit unclear uh, in some cases what, what what is meant by some of the terms on the list. Uh, and some of the uh, and the, the key thing I think to, is, is that some of these things are not really emerging as, as so much as they, they've been around a long time. Uh, for example, in the AI space, some of the algorithms and the, 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 the algorithmic approaches have been out there in the open source for a long time. And so there's a lot of concern that, that you're now moving back in the, in the sort of t- towards the more research and development phase of some of these technologies and trying to control them. And, it, 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 the, and Commerce even admitted that they're looking for help in terms of where to draw the line around these so-called emerging technologies and where to control them and where, when, when they become a concern for national, a national security concern. And so that's going to be really tough around something like, for example, for artificial intelligence, which uh, so here, heretofore has been 
developed in a largely open source environment, uh, a lot of sharing, a lot of collaboration between, in particular, U.S. and China, for example. And so um, the in- industry is very concerned that that the that the export control effort to sort of shore up the export control system will be will go too far uh, in in the direction of uh, of national security and will potentially you know stifle uh, the ability of companies to to um, to engage in uh, transfers of some technologies, for example, between their U.S. and their um, like Chinese-based research organizations, for example. So Google. Uh, for example, has a has an AI research center in China, and if you if you look at a strict interpretation of these of this if this goes into effect the, the export control list, um, if they wanted to transfer an algorithm f- from say you know California to to, to Shanghai that that and there were Chinese nationals on the other end wow. of this that were using this algorithm that could they, they could potentially have to have an export license each time they do that and that's sort of the worst case scenario and so companies multinational companies that are operating in China are very concerned about how this is going to be implemented and and again we don't we don't know exactly how this is going to be, be this is going to go but the the intent of putting these technologies out there for this for this list is eventually to put them on the commerce control list um, which is would be the list that would require an export license, um, and in and in particular would would require uh, could, could also be coupled with the so-called entity list, which is a list of companies that are denied uh, that are where there's a, a presumption of denial of an export license. So, for example, if you if you take a strict interpretation of the AI chipsets, you could uh, you could you could make a case that, that that there could be an attempt to export or to restrict export of. NVIDIA GPUs to the, say the four Chinese supercomputer centers that are that are using GPU GPUs as part of their 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 um, architecture of their supercomputers, uh, and, and because they're running algorithms there that could have military applications. Wow. So that's that's the sort of the sort of thing that this type of export control is trying to get at is is specifically both the technology getting at the technologies and the end so users. It, that seems so probably impossible. the the law will also include. Some updating of the entity list uh, to restrict t- uh, exports of these technologies to specific companies and organizations. It, w- would this be, I mean, either either as an intended consequence or an unintended consequence? Would it make doing business with China for companies like Google or Microsoft more trouble than it's worth? <laughs> well, again, I think that's going to depend on how. Uh, how this ultimately this list is ultimately um, you know sort of formulated and how it comes out and how the, the Commerce Department chooses to enforce this uh, this you know the, the export license process it's it's a it, it's going to take some time because you know but even even the best case scenario is, is gonna, this would take you know many m- some months to to go through the whole process and get implemented um, so I think we don't really know this yet but I think that's the con- that's indeed a concern. Of many um, U.S. companies operating in those sectors that are specifically uh, called out in the emerging technologies piece now, and you also have a, a, another list which will come out probably in the next couple of months. You know, I think probably March, which will be this list of foundational technologies too, and that will include likely things like semiconductor manufacturing equipment, mm. um, and so that's going to be another <laughs> whole set of of of, of tightening and of, of of export controls. Uh, related to 
Again, all these if you, you could argue many of these sectors that are being targeted are also fall under things like made in china twenty twenty five and so um, th- from from beijing 's optic, this is going to be very much looked at as being aimed at China from a u s company perspective yes it 's definitely going to comp- complicate their calculus in terms of how they interact with their um, with with their uh, whatever um, research organizations or manufacturing organizations they have in China and again part of this is it's interesting because under the the CFIUS uh, debate over the last two years one of the things that was taken out of CFIUS was re- um, reviews of outbound investment because industry didn't really want um, the U.S. government in, in the, getting involved in determining how they could invest uh, in technology, sort of outbound, like for example, joint ventures in China. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but through the through the the export control piece, it's almost like a backdoor, uh, sort of to, to that um, backdooring in that kind of review. So essentially, you could have cases where uh, a U.S. company wants to form a joint venture in China, but they can't transfer the technology because it's not export controlled. So it's it's a very um, complicated. Uh, uh, issue because this is this has never been done before, and so part of the challenge is is it's going to require a lot of lawyers, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, a lot of legal uh, interpretations about how this is going to be implemented. And again, as I get as I mentioned earlier, it's going to take a couple of real cases to see how this is going to be done. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, how this is going to play out for industry. So that the, the first test case will be really interesting to see how that that comes out. Um, but I think we will see that in 2019. I feel like some of the low low hanging hanging fruit here would be just control the data and like keep the data like u.s uh citizens or u.s data keep it within the u.s borders and then have if you have you know because a lot i mean like you said a lot of these ai algorithms machine learning algorithms have been around since the 70s sometimes the 60s it's open source it's in old textbooks i mean it's like um the key to implementing the algorithm, though, is the data. So, you know, if there's maybe an, an easy way to kind of, you know, I, get, I think the policy issues there would be a little bit easier. Well, that, that that's a really what do you think, Paul? Interesting and complicated question. So, I think, um, yeah, you're, what's happening in the U.S. I think is is is, is a is a review reviewing of of our whole digital the way the way the digital economy is being is being handled so if you look at something you mentioned earlier the the, the European uh, general data protection regulation which is which is their effort to control cross-border right. data personal data flows and the, the, over the last year there's been a huge movement in the US towards the US having some some sort of legislation to govern data privacy because of a, in part because of a lot of the breaches the data breaches but also things like Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and so there's sort of Mounting pressure in the U.S. to to generally get a better handle on protecting user data uh, that's out there, and that you know that's a complicated issue in the U.S. It's been typically been hands off. The FTC, the, the Federal Trade Commission, can come in after a data breach and impose fines. But there's a growing perception that that sort of that sort of damage based system isn't isn't very good in this day and age. So there's going to be in 2019 we think there's going to be an effort in Congress to to really shore up the US data regime. Then when it comes to things like AI, you know, that that's a that's a good question and it looks like the Commerce Department is attempting to 
get a handle on the whole AI stack. So everything from, as I mentioned, semiconductors to the development environment uh, and the cloud-based development environments, for example, and then the algorithms themselves. Uh, so if you look at it, again, step back and look at it, I think you're, you're right in the sense that the, that, that the data is important, but I think um, the U.S. government is taking a sort of broad approach to this, and then the data piece will probably be handled um, through a whole bunch of other other means, such as, for example, as I mentioned earlier, the CFIUS <laughs> shoot-down of a deal that involved data. Um, so there's, other, there's a lot of different instruments here that the U.S. government can use to control uh, uh, things like data and technology transfers to, to, to end users that, 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 are, that are deemed to be of either national security or economic security concern. Um, so I think that's, that's the world we're in. I mean, it's a very different world, again, than we were in a year ago. Um, but uh, part, and again, going back to sort of the original driver for a lot of this, is the perception that China and Chinese companies were were able to to sort of circumvent and create um, interesting legal structures and other business structures to get around some of the existing uh, restrictions on on investment uh, that the U.S. had put in place since back going back to you know to, again to 2007 in particular. Um, so I think that that a lot of this is driven by just you know updating legislation that's outdated and addressing the rise of China and Chinese companies' acquisitions globally. Uh, and this is going to continue you know, well into 2019, and it's going to also likely include other uh, changes to U.S. statutory uh, authorities and other things that are going to um, you know, make it really hard uh, for companies to acquire, companies with, particularly with Chinese government backing, to acquire um, any, any U.S. Uh, companies that are in these sensitive uh, technology areas. When we're... When we look, you know, going forward into 2019, what are some key decisions or some key news that you're going to be looking for that will uh, be kind of key indicators or um, signal what direction this will all be moving in? Um, so that's question number one. So what are you looking for and what will you be paying attention to in the next year? Uh, number two is... Who do you foresee? What companies do you foresee, um, you know, being being the winners or losers potentially from this? Um, you know, we're, we're looking at particularly publicly listed Chinese tech stocks in this in this podcast. Um, but how does this changing environment? How should this, from your perspective, change? You know, the way that maybe portfolio managers look at um, <laughs> at, at their investments. <laughs> That is a good question. So, uh, of course, we think about that a lot too, because um, we, we have a lot of clients in that in that in that sector. So, um, I think the first to the answer to the first question. I mean, we're looking broadly at where the whole U.S. China relationship is going and how that's going to affect all these mm. things. So, you know, I, I tend to I tend to typically divide it into the tech piece of that into three areas. The first is the trade negotiations and all the tech issues around those. So. We don't. We, we're going to be looking at how the obviously these come out in the next whatever ninety days as we look towards March first to see if if we're going to really get back to some type of engagement between the U.S. and China because I think by, as we roll back the year we were deep into a, a, a trough of non-engagement until uh, the G20 until we got you know this formal this framework agreement and now we're in this this this, this uh, period where there'll be some very serious and tough negotiations around those issues central to 
to the U.S. Uh, TR301 investigation, you know, market access, forced tech transfer, industrial policies like Made in China 2025. So that basket is critical to the other baskets because the second basket is this broader issue of supply chains, the investment restrictions, export controls. Those are separate but related to the trade issue. Uh, and then finally, there's the sort of struggle, long-term struggle between the U.S. and China for uh, the next generation technologies like AI and quantum computing. And that, that's a long-term sort of game that's going to play out too that, that again, is not directly necessarily directly related to the trade issues, but will, you know, they're, all, they're all sort of inter, inter, interweaved. So the first thing we're going to be looking at is, is, is there any sign that the trade negotiations are going to reduce some of these tensions and, and lead to a process that can build, up, build back up some level of trust? Because the problem is there's just no trust now in the relationship. There's no ballast in the relationship. The, the business community is, for example, is, you know, is, is, is now pushing back and supportive of some of the, of the, administ- the Trump administration's policies and that tariff policies and others. Even though they don't like them, they're still, they still feel like this is a chance to force uh, change in China's uh, approach to some of these key issues. Um, so that's the first thing. If that, if that goes off the rails, <laughs> you know, then the other issues are going to become even more mm. difficult and intractable. So, for example, the Huawei issue is another big one, where as we head into into the real beginning of deployment of 5G in 2019, if, for example, the European market ends up become, becoming closed to Huawei, then then we're looking at a sort of bifurcated 5G world where we're going to have two essentially two different supply mm. chains. And that's going to be a very complicated process of separating out those supply chains because up until now, the, the the global 5G community has been marching forward as if there was going to be a single integrated supply chain, and now you're going to really force a change in that. So that's going to be huge in, in 2019. We at Eurasia Group think that if all these things go off the rails badly, we could have what what we're calling an innovation winter. Huh. Uh, this is one of our this is one of our top risks of 2019 because we think that you know up until now we've had these virtuous supply chains integrated in, within in Asia and China we've had flows of students to the U.S. for example STEM students and if all of these these processes are, 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 are disrupted because of this the U.S. China tech what we call the U.S. China tech Cold War the the 2019 is could be a really difficult year for the for the tech industry you know even more than 2018 was because companies are going to for example be worried about how they rejigger their supply chains moving some of the key elements out of China and moving to other places so they'll be occupied with that that's going to impact you know business profits and opera and, and, and you know commercial operations um, and so the we're going to be looking for just sort of how bad this gets in 2019 and 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 the initial signpost will be the trade negotiations but then the other thing will be you know how how what happens to the Huawei CFO uh, you know Meng Wanzhou does she get yeah. released does this lead to to further tensions over over Huawei um, does the Huawei issue get dragged into the the trade negotiations um, does Huawei get slapped with a with a denial order like ZTE got slapped with, because all these things are going to are going to pl- be at play um, early in 2019 and be indicators of how bad or things are going to get, or whether there's going to be a, an attempt to sort of get back to some new normal in the relationship, which will then impact the tech sector, uh, you know, accordingly. So it's it's going to be the first couple months. I think are going to be critical in determining the direction of this uh, this so-called Cold War. And there are going to be elements that aren't going to go away, but the question is sort of how, how deep it goes and how far it goes and how long it, it goes and whether there can be an attempt to pull back some of the, the, the worst elements. Wow. 
for the business community. Well, innovation winter. That sounds. That's a good. Uh, that's a good. Uh, you know, hashtag and uh, <laughs> and and also it also sounds like a good article idea. So that's a, that's one for me to put on the uh, the notebook. You know, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Now you have to you have you have to keep this under wraps because we're going to unveil our top risks next okay. week. Um, and I, th- I think it's the third risk. And so I'm going to be we're going to be doing it'll be you know my our president Ian Bremmer will be doing a big a whole video thing on it on all the all the, the top ten risks of which that will be one. Um, so you have to. I have to, you have to sign oh, a sure. NDA no, right now. So Paul, really, I, I'm, I'm a very, no, I'm a very slow writer. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but we should. That, that's a good. It's a good issue. We should. We should collaborate on something absolutely, related. To that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, <coughs> Paul Triolo, head of global technology policy at the Eurasia Group. How can people, uh, if they want to follow you, if they want to, you know, read more of your stuff, how can they do that? Well, I have a, a handy Twitter feed, at uh, PST Asia Tech. Uh, and then I also uh, contribute a lot, uh, working with a group of young China linguists and analysts uh, uh, at the New America uh, Think Tank. Uh, we have a, a site called DigiChina. So if you just Google DigiChina, D-I-G-I-C-H-I-N-A, you can find a lot of the work we do there, uh, which relates to China's digital economy. And then also I'm going to be a regular uh, blog uh, uh, column Columnist actually with Sub China uh, on on China tech issues. I've done a couple already there already. Um, and so if you if you just Google Sub China and look at, at um, some of the recent stuff, uh, we'll have a we'll have a podcast there also on the uh, 5G issue that you mentioned earlier uh, coming out this week. Uh, so oh, excellent. Not not hard to find me. Great. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm a. I'm a regular follower of all of Paul's stuff, a regular reader, and I'm uh, I'm a big fan. So and I'm a big fan you, of you, by the way, too. I think you, you're, you're no seriously. Your perspective is great. <laughs> I think you guys do a great job. Um, I just think Thanks, that Paul. there's a lot of a lot of swirl around these issues, and it's nice to uh, to have you know some people with real experience and real uh, practical views of all these things, um, co- making in- informed and intelligent comments like yourself. So I appreciate uh, the the chance to contribute to that. Thanks. Yeah, we are trying to seek truth from facts. So, (laughs) um, yes. Anyways, thank you so much for joining us, and have a good 2019. Well, that just about does it for us today. We want to thank Paul Triolo from the Eurasia Group once again. And uh, we also want to encourage all of our listeners to go to technote.com slash newsletters and subscribe to one of TechNode's many great newsletters, or all of them. Uh, They are your central node for everything in China Tech, and they go way more in-depth than any other English-language news publication when it comes to China Tech. Also, be sure to rate us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast. Five stars on iTunes, please, or give us a star on uh, on Overcast or wherever else. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm Elliot Zagman. That's E L L I O T T Z A A G M A N. James is James Hull X J A M E S H U L L X. And James, what are you looking for in the coming? Week? I will be looking for powder snow, <laughs> and in Japan they call it konayuki. Um, but I will also be looking right. for uh, Taishin's manufacturing PMI that's coming out later today, uh, and as well as the composite PMI and the services PMI coming out on Friday. I think one of the slighter, bigger things from last week was 
the NBS, uh, National Bureau of, of Statistics, manufacturing PMI was lower than expected, uh, the f- first time in a long time being below 50. Um, and, but the non-manufacturing PMI was actually up from the previous uh, number. So we'll, we still see this divergence that's happening between uh, manufacturing and non-manufacturing. What, uh, what are you looking for, Al? All right. Uh, so what I'm going to be looking at is a few different things. One is, you know, just from my own network and from uh, just the the local China tech news that's, that's reported, um, we've been seeing a lot of layoffs among Chinese tech and internet firms. Um, whatever other inter- layoffs are going to happen with these companies, uh, it'll probably be over the next month uh, between from the beginning of January to the beginning of February, uh, most companies, they want to get the layoffs done by Spring Festival. So whatever other news that we have about that, we're going to hear over the next month. We're going to see how bad this is. Um, But most companies are going to try to kind of have their personnel in order by the time they come back from Spring Festival. So, um, you know, we're going to, I'm going to be looking, kind of keeping my ear to the ground for more of that. Um, In addition to that, I'm going to be, you know, looking at the, um, the political situation here in the U.S. We have the Democrats, uh, you know, taking the House now, and they're going to be—they're now in power. They will be in power later this week, uh, and they—they they have this government shutdown. So we're going to see if um, if Trump, how bad Trump wants this wall, and how bad he's willing to uh, uh, to hold out over it, or um, you know, if, if they can strike a deal, um, and if this impacts markets in any way. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. Also. Because we have the, we just finished the the holidays in the U.S., so we have the holidays in China coming up in February. January is usually a pretty hot month when it comes to news, so uh, I'll be paying attention to just you know whatever comes across my Twitter feed, uh, and uh, yeah, so uh, I'll be be looking forward to seeing what comes up. James, anything else you want to say? That's it. Thanks, everyone. All right. Well, join us all next time on the China Tech Investor Podcast. Also. Thanks again, as always, to our producer extraordinaire, John Artman. We'll see you next time.